Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied abundantly unto you all through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are going to look at Mark chapter 5, the healing of Jairus' daughter. I read this interesting story recently. In 1865, in a small town in Wisconsin, five-year-old Max Hoffman came down with cholera. Three days later, the doctor pulled the sheets over the boy's head and pronounced him dead. Little Max was laid to rest in the village cemetery. That night, his mother awoke screaming. She had dreamt that her son was turning over in his grave. Trembling with fear, she begged her husband to go to the cemetery and immediately raise the coffin. Mr. Hoffman did his best to calm his wife, assuring her that while her nightmare was indeed horrible, it was still just a dream. These things happened often. Calm down, Mrs. Hoffman returned to bed. But the next night, Max's mother had the identical dream, and this time she would not be denied. Reluctantly, Mr. Hoffman asked his eldest boy and a neighbor to help him unearth the body. They dug up the coffin, opened the lid, and incredibly, there was Max lying on his side. Though he showed no signs of life, Mr. Hoffman brought the boy back to his house so the doctor could have one last look at him. At the Hoffman home, the physician labored to revive him. After an hour, Max's eyelids fluttered. The doctor immediately placed heated salt bags under the boy's arms, rubbed his lips with brandy, and watched for signs of recovery. Recover, Max did. After a week, he was out playing with his friends again, and the boy who died at five lived well into his 80s in Clinton, Iowa. For his entire life, Max Hoffman's most treasured memento was the metal handles he had taken from his own coffin. Of course, medical science has progressed to the point today where such a terrifying thing is almost an impossibility. But I tell you that story because it sounds eerily familiar to the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter. The Gospel gives us three examples of Jesus bringing the dead back to life. The widow of Nain, her son, Lazarus, and Jairus' daughter. So the man who was to be resurrected tried it on some others first in a much more modest form. Of course, each of these resurrection stories are different, but this one is perhaps most different of all. Remember what Mark says, as soon as Jesus finished putting the man named Legion back together, a man named Jairus came up to him, threw himself down at Jesus' feet, and pleaded with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. Who was Jairus? One of the rulers of the synagogue. It required 10 adult males, a minion, to constitute a synagogue, and these became its rulers. The synagogue in this case was probably in Capernaum. Jairus had been chosen as president by the board of the elders in the synagogue. His office is of special interest to us because, in all likelihood, Christians had usually found such leaders stubborn in their refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah. And Mark may be saying to his readers, 
Look, here's an important man, a ruler of the Jews. And he came to Jesus for help when his daughter was dying. Don't you see? Jesus has come into the world for all kinds of people, Jew and Gentile alike. My little daughter is dying. Please come put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. It would be hard to see how Jesus could refuse an invitation such as that. And so he went. But there was a slight delay because Jesus had to attend another needy person. The woman, was the, the woman who had the issue of blood. But while he was on his way, Jairus' neighbor came with the tragic news. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? That's a terrible point to reach. Terrible words for anyone to hear, especially a parent. Your daughter is dead. Tragic. And look what Jesus says. Ignoring what they said. Yeah. Jesus ignored what they said. Now, are there, there are some people whom it's best to ignore, the doomsayers, the folks who always say no, the people who bring their wet blankets to every party. What can you say after the experts have pronounced the patient dead? But Jesus knew different. Jesus gets the last word. Jesus always gets the last word. He knew as we who live on the other side of Easter are supposed to know, that death does not have the last word. God does. And God never comes to the end of his rope because God is everlasting, and apparently so is his rope. And apparently so is his love. So a number of years ago, when people were saying that God is dead, the majority of faithful Christians went about their business ignoring the rumor. We know the truth. Some people today think that the church is dying. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus said to the doomsayers in Mark 5, verse 39, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. This is not the first nor the last time that Jesus has been laughed at. Now, most people I know who are skeptical of the Christian faith, they might oppose Jesus or malign Jesus, but few would laugh, probably because even the serious, the serious critics of Jesus have to acknowledge that he is the most influential person in history. Hard to deny that. When we put ourselves back 2,000 years in history before his monumental death, before his miraculous resurrection, you can kind of understand people laughing at him. Most folks back then did not believe in a resurrection. Some did, but some didn't. The Sadducees didn't. They mocked Jesus once with a hypothetical question. So you believe in the resurrection? Well, tell us then, what happens when a woman has had seven husbands, etc., etc.? 
Who is she going to be married, in, married to in heaven? And Jesus conveniently dodged the question, saying, they simply did not understand the power of God, and nor do we. And nor did they at Jairus' house, nor does anybody fully understand the power of God. So they laughed. The sound of laughter was nothing new to Jesus' ear. I mean, Jesus' own people laughed when they heard that he had come from Nazareth. Nathaniel, one of his disciples. John chapter 1, verse 46. Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nazareth was the nowheresville of Judea. When Christianity began in the Roman world, people laughed. Seriously? The savior of the world from such a little insignificant country as Palestine? You've got to be kidding. There was laughter usually tinged with scorn at the worship of the crucified carpenter. There was actually an ancient piece of graffiti on a catacomb wall which showed a crucified man with a donkey's head and the inscription beneath, Anaximenes worships his God. That was in 200 AD. They were making fun of Christians and of Jesus Christ. One of the oldest, the oldest depiction of Jesus on the cross. Down through centuries, people have found something about Christians and Jesus that made them laugh. Sometimes it's the wise people of an age that will laugh at him. I mean, if Jesus was a poetic fool who taught a vague and foggy belief in God and recommended kindness and goodwill, then a laugh might be excused. But if Almighty God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, then the last word is with him. You see, what you believe about Jesus Christ determines whether or not you will listen to him or laugh at him. If he really is God, then the world better listen up. Now, let's take a look at Jewish mourning customs. They were very detailed. Practically all of them were designed to stress the terrible desolation and the final separation of death. Details of preparations for burial began even before death had occurred. Weeping and wailing were the order of the day. And to ensure that neighbors knew how bad people were grieving, often professional mourners were hired to weep and wail for the occasion. People beat their breasts, pulled out their hair, ripped their clothes, and there were exact prescriptions about how it was to be done. And for some reason, flute players were considered essential for a funeral. Matthew mentions them in connection with this story. Throughout the ancient world, the flute was somehow inseparably connected with death and tragedy. It was said that no matter how poor a man was, he was to have at least two flute players at his wife's funeral. In addition, there were all sorts of rules and regulations about how families were to comfort themselves after the funeral, not eating or drinking certain things, not working, etc., etc., one particular moving practice was in the case of a young life cut off too soon, like the one in 
the story. If the young person had not yet been married, sort of a form of marriage service was part of the burial rite. Bizarre. How sad and tragic all of these customs seem to us. We who bury our loved ones with grief, but grief tempered with Christian promise of resurrection. We grieve as those, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Clement of Alexandria, one of the early church fathers, said long ago, Jesus changes the sunsets of life into a sunrise. So when Jesus arrived at Jairus' house, they were already tuning their instruments, getting ready for the funeral. And Jesus says, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And so they laughed. But what does Jesus do? He does. He lays his hands on her. He took her by the hand and said to her, Telitha kum. Little girl, I say to you, get up. Now how did this little bit of Aramaic, the language of the common people, the language Jesus spoke, get embedded in the Gospels, which were written in Greek? Probably only one reason. We believe that Mark got his information straight from Peter. Peter, as the story tells us, had been there. He had been one of those chosen by the Lord to be present at this miracle. And he could never, ever forget Jesus' voice of authority on this occasion. Boy, in his mind, he would hear Talitha Kum all of his life. Verse 42, immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Not laughing anymore. Who wouldn't be? And then he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Two things surprise us that Jesus should think of such a mundane little detail as feeding the poor child and that he should not want anybody to know what happened. Strict orders. What? No revival tent? No sign? Come and be healed. 7 p.m. service? No television broadcast to the whole world? No posting it on social media? So what then exactly did happen? Strictly speaking, if we take Jesus' word for it, literally, this particular child was not dead, but was perhaps in some death-like coma, such as what happened to Max Hoffman 1,800 years later. But remember... It was a coma which, without Jesus' interference, would have ended in death. Was she dead? Was she in a deep sleep coma? Was Jesus referring to death as a sleep, kind of like Paul does later in his writings? The Gospels are unanimous, I'll tell you that. That God's power through Jesus Christ brought about this miraculous recovery. And here's what I really love about this story. My little daughter is at the point of death. Come, Jesus, and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. What 
faith. Lay your hands on her. This suggests an eternal truth that whatever Jesus lays his hands upon lives. And the other part of this gospel lesson for that Sunday, where the woman with the issue of blood reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' garment, is healed, suggests touching Jesus. Jesus touching brings about healing. Jesus laid his hands on Peter, the big burly fisherman, and he became the leader of the apostolic band. He laid his hands on the other disciples, like James and John, the so-called sons of thunder, who were ambitious and freewheeling. They became students of a rabbi who, who taught them that success came through humble service. We who are in the ministry see this happen all the time. When Jesus lays his hands on someone's life, they change. Miracles happen. Not necessarily in the way that we expect them to, or the way we want them to, or wish they would, but they do happen. Jesus lays his hand on individuals. They become better persons. He lays his hands on marriages and they are reborn. He lays his hands on sorrow, trouble, and affliction. And instead of bringing death, they become blessings. The supreme example, of course, is Jesus himself. He laid his hands upon a cross, an instrument of cruel torture. He carried that cross for us and he transformed it into a sign of forgiveness and hope. We put those crosses on our walls and we worship under their shadow. We may not understand the cross, but we stand under it. Often we think of what the cross did to Jesus. We do that on Good Friday, of course. Absolutely true. But have you ever thought about what Jesus did to the cross? Our sins put Jesus to death on the cross, but Jesus once and for all bore our sins on the cross and buried them forever in the depth of his love? Perhaps because of this miraculous story and a few others in the Bible, the tradition of laying on of hands has remained in the church throughout the centuries, especially in connection with the absolution the pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins and the bestowing of the Holy Spirit. At baptism, the pastor lays his hands on the head of the baptized. At confirmation, the same thing. At individual confession and absolution, when visiting the sick and the dying, the pastor lays his hands on the sick and the dying, a powerful reminder of God's love and compassion. Come, lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he did that. Little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. Are you completely astonished? at the power of God's love through Jesus Christ and how it changes death to life.
for you and for me. Amen.